From the beautiful city of Hollywood, we bring you Film Forward, the official podcast of the Los Angeles Diversity Film Festival. Hey, hey, welcome to Film Forward, everybody, the official podcast of the Los Angeles Diversity Film Festival. And we've got a great guest today discussing a breathtaking film. But before we get into it, if you like what you hear today, please subscribe to Film Forward on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts from for weekly episodes where we not only interview LADFF filmmakers like we're doing today, we also interview filmmakers with new theatrical releases. And of course, we do our patented Gimme Three episodes. So click that subscribe button, leave us a comment. We've got plenty coming up for you and plenty in our archives as well. As I mentioned, though, we are really lucky to be joined by an incredible guest today. His documentary, The Bears on Pine Ridge, can be seen at LADFF, Mr. Noel Boss. Noel, thanks so much for joining us today. Yeah, thank you very much. I'm happy to be here, so I appreciate it very much. Yeah, no problem. For those who haven't seen it, tell the audience about your really powerful film, The Bears on Pine Ridge. Sure. Well, thank you very much for saying that it's powerful. And, you know, I think the material that's in it and the topic that it covers is powerful. Honestly, whether I did a good job putting the piece together is still a debate because it's my first film. So, but just to, to get into the, oh, thank you. It was a lot of effort and something that a lot of people don't know about this project is it was all volunteer based, most of mm-hmm. it producer funded. So, you know, we didn't get any grants or anything like that. But at the same time, going onto a native reservation and filming, you know, something intimate like this, a topic that talks about youth mental health and the struggles with depression and poverty and suicide ideations. I mean, I think it's almost better that you don't roll in with a whole crew with producers and, you know, mics all over the place and several cameras and people with definitive schedules and stuff like that. Filming on a native reservation requires, you know, a lot of flexibility. So I think it was kind of a benefit going in there and alone and, and getting to know people and, and just really you know, have an organic process. But to explain what the film's about, just so people know what the Bears on Pine Ridge is covering, in 2015, actually in 2009, 2015, and then recently in 2020, the Pine Ridge Reservation declared states of emergencies for suicide. So mental health is a huge, huge issue that's happening on the reservation. And it's getting very little coverage outside the reservation because they're so remote, first of all. And then secondly, they don't have a large voice in communities that are, uh, I guess, urban communities or just metropolis cities. And then they also don't have a lot of political pull, like I said, because they they just don't have a lot of money and, and sway on politics. So this issue has been happening for decades across not just the Pine Ridge Reservation, but also in other indigenous communities across the country. And what we found is a lot of people in big metropolis cities like Los Angeles and New York or Chicago, or, you know, you can just keep going on the cities. They're not aware of what's going on in their own country. Before I go too far, I just want to kind of tell people what one main problem is. And this will kind of give like a springboard into what the story is actually about. By way of peace treaties, historically, with Native American communities, the U.S. government made these peace treaties with these communities, saying we will not go to war and we will have a reservation system, basically saying you're going to have an allotment of land where you're going to be provided with food, housing, education, and healthcare. And there's a few other things in there. 
But the healthcare was a very serious promise because at that time, as you know, there were, you know, all these Western diseases that were killing off Native Americans really rapidly. And so the, you know, having Western doctors come in and take care of the health was was really important. And as time has gone on, the U.S. government has not upheld its promises with the Native Americans as far as giving proper education, you know, like putting a lot of money into a strong educational system, into housing. They have the worst housing situation in the whole country, and sometimes it's been compared to third world countries, where sometimes you see families that have 20 people in a two-bedroom home, and then you get to healthcare. And the Indian Health Service hospitals, which are federally funded, these are supposed to be, you know, run efficiently and looked at consistently on their quality of care. They've been rated as third world condition hospitals where people are dying in the emergency room. It's well known, you can do research on this, that senators, congressmen, politicians, the people in these communities all acknowledge that it's the worst possible healthcare that you can get. And that includes the mental health department, where you have youth in the community that are struggling very severely with depression, who don't want to go into the mental health offices because it's so dysfunctional and it's so underfunded. Therapists or counselors go in and then they leave after six months. Or The worst problem is they have a three-month waiting list. So Imagine if you're struggling with ideations of suicide. Let's say you lost a family member or a loved one or a best friend to suicide. You're depressed. You're hungry. You're just struggling to to survive. And you're at that age, that teenage age where you're impressionable and you're supposed to have a lot of hope in your life. And you're suddenly derailed and you have no one to talk to. And you have to wait three months to even get inside to talk to a counselor. So this is where our story begins, is knowing all that, how dysfunctional the system is set up. Our story begins by following residents who have taken it upon themselves to create their own suicide prevention programs. We follow a couple of elders in the community who've been doing it for a while. And they've basically had to figure out how to do this on their own. And, you know, they've gone through, I don't want to bore the audience, but they've gone through a lot of training programs and they've brought people in from outside the reservation to help with curriculums and stuff like this. But then they have their own just door-to-door sort of groundwork that they've put in. And so what people are going to be introduced to in in this film is watching a community who uh, has basically been wronged by their healthcare system, which should be provided by the federal government, who now have taken it upon themselves to figure out how to help save their children. I hope I explained that in a good way. Yeah, absolutely. You explained it beautifully. And I want to talk about one of those elders in particular, Tiny, who you know helps run the BEAR program. And more than that, she's clearly a, you know, a community leader. How did you get connected with Tiny? Because it's, uh, it's very obvious that this documentary does not happen without her blessing. She feels very much like a mother figure in the community. That's how it comes across. Oh, good. Yeah, that's exactly right. You nailed it. So Tiny DeCorey, I guess, is arguably the lead subject in this film. Or not even arguably. She's the lead subject in the film. Her presence in the community is, is huge. I mean, it's you know kind of ironic. Her name is Tiny, and 
she's just this huge figure. <laughs> and, um, you know, she's been working with the youth ever since, like for 40 years, she started in primary education. And when she started noticing that there was a problem with mental health and people were struggling, what she saw was there was a huge dropout rate in schools. And so she attributed that to reading. So a lot of kids, because of the poor education, will go into high school, believe it or not, without being able to read. And I think it's something like a 70% dropout rate out of high school because they just can't, you know, somehow they got there to high school, but without having that, that proper education. So she created this program called the BEAR program, which stands for Be Excited About Reading. And so she wanted to make reading fun for the community. So she went out and, and got these mascot outfits, like big, colorful animal mascot outfits. And she got a, you know some of her family members and friends to put them on. And then they'd go out in the community and they'd do these little skits saying you know how important reading is and it can be fun. And you, know, you can let your imagination go crazy and throw a book. But what happened was once the reservations had these state of emergencies for suicide, you know, it shook the whole community. Everybody's scared, you know, because this is like suddenly someone in your classroom is not there on Monday. And then within a week, you know, maybe your close friend of yours attempts or, you know, this is very real to them. It's, it, you know, it's a small community about like 25,000 people. So when something like this happens, it shakes everyone. And so she shifted the BEAR program to start focusing in on suicide prevention. And ultimately what comes of it is she started working in, she was always working in uh, prevention and working with the youth. And so what she did was started bringing in these recovering suicide survivors, people who had tried, these teenagers who had tried to commit at one point or who had ideations or had other self-harm behaviors. And she created this kind of safe space for them and uh, almost like this this little family where they could all talk to each other. And basically what she did is she created somewhat of a performance group with these individuals to perform in mascot outfits in front of crowds of kids where she could then essentially after they're all you know dancing and having fun they could take off the outfits and talk to the crowd about the seriousness of what they have been through you know bullying or domestic abuse or rape or just poverty or you know a lot of the things that kids don't want to talk about she has these firsthand survivors speaking openly so that people in the crowd can identify see the strength in their voice and see that it's okay that it's okay to talk about and it's okay to be empowered. So that's her whole message. And so what people are going to see in the film is simultaneously, you're going to see Tiny DeCorey doing her outreach work in the community, helping people heal through suicide, talking to elders and young people, giving presentations. She's a performer. And then also you're going to see her bear program, a little bit of her bear program, and see some of the youth that are involved. You know, it's a 40-minute film, so you're only going to get a little bit of a glimpse. By the way, we're making a full feature eventually, so it'll have a lot more of everything in there, including the problem with the healthcare system. Well, that's great to hear that you're making a full feature because I think the subject matter definitely calls for it. As many eyes that are on this issue and this subject, the better. As you mentioned, it's not a new issue. This is something that's been going on for generations, and a lot of the interview subjects that you talk to in the film you know, touch on that. And you even have a news media footage from, you know, what seems like decades ago, like 70s or 80s, covering it and covering the poverty there, covering the health system there and the lack of industry, the unemployment rate. 
it's kind of startling to see that footage from, you know, decades ago and still be, you know, here we are 34 years later and still nothing really being done about it. The federal government has done so little uh, or less than little. You know, since you were working so closely with Tiny, I marvel at her persistence and her, you know, her strength to just like continue this fight with such passion and be able to uplift these kids. It's really remarkable to watch. Yeah, Tiny is amazing. And she's been through multiple kind of organizations for suicide prevention. What happens on the reservation is anything that gets funded, you can almost be sure that within several years, it's going to get defunded or it's going to fall apart in some way because of a lack of funding. They really, really survive on donations and grants. And when you're trying to get a grant as an organization, you make one little slip up on the application or whatnot, and it could totally derail the next three years of funding. And so that happens a lot on the reservation with these programs. And so Tiny's been in several suicide prevention programs, and the BEAR program is her own nonprofit that she started, so she survives on donations and whatnot. But she does have partners. I want to bring up Eileen Janice. She has her niece that has been helping her, sort of like, you could say, assistant, but a much more prominent role than assistant. They have each kind of done their own independent suicide prevention and youth work, but they do the majority of the body of work together. And Eileen will be featured more in, in the feature film. But like you're saying, Tiny is, I guess, an, an elder. She's, I think she's about 70 now. And, you know, she's been doing this for such a long time that it does compromise her health. You can't not be affected by hearing the tragic realities of, you know, people wanting to kill themselves. I hope that's not shocking to talk about it. But to hear people with mental health issues and their struggles yeah. and people, you know, breaking down. And then, you know, she actually gets these last second kind of cries for help. People will send photos. Look, I just did this to myself, you know, and they're very graphic images. And she's been in there to take people off and trigger warning here, but she's been there to take people off from hanging and, and uh, take the rope off their neck. And, and so her reality is very different from what you would see from a typical mental health counselor or suicide prevention specialist who is doing most of their work by counseling. She's very much almost like a first responder mm -hmm. who is the, you know, someone trusted in the community because she's doing a lot of this stuff out of her own pocket. You know, you have to drive very far to some of these houses and that gas money comes out of her pocket. And, but she's a special individual. I think to get out of some of the seriousness of this topic, I think I do want to point to people, you know, who may want to watch the film or who are interested. You're going to get some pieces of joy in this film. We're trying to highlight the heroic things that the community is doing because the problem of fixing the Indian health services through the government, you're talking about decades. Okay, you're talking you're going to be talking about many, 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 many years from now until things get fixed. And so, you know, we're focusing here on yes, we're so focusing on a very serious issue that needs attention. And uh, the more people that are aware of it, hopefully you go to politicians and you, you know, you're in an uproar, but we're focusing on these people who are heroes and also these hopeful stories, the, a program like the bear program where you can turn your life around if you were suicidal in a community by having something to believe in. I hope that came across to you, Nicholas. You know, it's not just a, a full serious piece that people may not want to turn on that they're going to get some different emotions out of this and, and they're going to see a bright side. Absolutely. I think that is very important to bring up. And there's a reason why 
we put this film, The Bears on Pine Ridge, in the Empower section of the film festival because there are some very empowering moments. And like a lot of the pertinent, really tough issues that are facing this country today, it's inspiring and empowering to see like a lot of times the biggest change, the best change comes from people and the community. And that absolutely came across here. There are really a lot of great heartwarming scenes in the film. And I want to switch gears a little bit and talk to us about kind of like the production aspect of shooting a documentary out in a reservation, because obviously you're in a very remote place. Um, You know, there's certain equipment needs or other filmmaking elements that, you know, like are are, are kind of nowhere near you. So talk to us about like making a film really in a way that where you don't have any, any production support. Uh, Yeah, it's, it's very difficult, but I think, you know, everybody that's trying to make a film, you're going to find that it's difficult, you know? And so going into making a film in general, I think the only way this film happened is because I was really naive. (laughs) You know, this could be something that could be done in a short amount of time or whatnot. So we weren't funded by any grants. I'm a first-time filmmaker, so it's hard to get grants like that. And my profession was professional photographer. And initially, when I went to the reservation, I went and um, volunteered. I was helping this organization that helped families kind of rebuild homes. And one of the tasks we had was breaking rocks to make gravel because gravel is very expensive and stuff like that. And my purpose for going there was because I learned about the suicide situation. And I, at that time, had, I had depression issues and stuff. And so I was sparked by that interest. And so I went out and I started volunteering and, and just kind of, I, I wasn't planning on shooting a documentary. I was just planning on learning more. And, and it was shocking to me. I came from Southern California. And so it was shocking that this was going on in the country when I found that out. And so I was like, I have to go there and see what's going on. And it wasn't until four years later, after I'd met Tiny and Eileen, and I got a sense that they wanted to talk, they wanted to be interviewed, and they wanted people to know. You know, this community wants people across the world to know what's going on. Not in like a help us, save us kind of way, more of like, hey, you know, this issue's going on, and we can't get the attention that's deserved from what's promised to us. And then not only that, obviously putting attention onto it, they're able to get more funding for their own programs. So attention is a big thing for them. So it was very hard. So I went out when I first decided in 2015 to like really start documenting what was going on. I had to purchase like, you know, a bunch of stuff that I had no idea how to use like microphones and uh, professional microphones. And, you know, there were no lightweight motorized gimbals at that time. And, and just a bunch of things that I was trying to learn on the fly. And so for the first, I don't know, few months or so, it was just a learning curve. And just really embarrassing. If you saw the footage that I shot, I shot an entire interview where I took Tiny and Eileen to this, what I thought was a quiet area where there were trees, it was outdoors, and the wind picked up. And so the trees were kind of moving, right? And I had the mic essentially laying down on the ground, pointing up at them, right? Well, what's above them is these trees going crazy in the wind. And so, you know, I do this whole long interview an hour or whatever. And, you know, they're being very courteous with their time and, you know, talking about very important issues. And then all you hear in that audio is, you know, trees going everywhere. (laughs) And so there was a lot of that. If they had to choose a filmmaker to do this film, it wouldn't be me. And they've been so courteous. And this community has been so courteous. 
I just kept popping back, being like, I'm so sorry, the interview was, you know, recorded poorly. And, you know, finally over just trial and error, I finally, you know, was able to just figure out now how to just stop messing up essentially. And you could make a documentary with terrible footage and terrible audio because this is an important topic, but it's not going to go anywhere. Not, not by the standards of today, of what people expect in documentary. So it was very challenging. I had to do a, a lot of it myself just by trial and error. And I stayed in tents at one point and 100 degree weather. And oh, you can't even think in that kind of heat, you know, let alone conduct interviews. And on Pine Ridge, there's very little housing. And on top of that, there's essentially no areas where you can just go in and film an interview or whatnot. So it's very strategic. You have to be very flexible. And this is possibly why you don't see a lot of networks going in because it's very hard to plan a professional filming situation on a reservation where there's just not a lot of buildings. There's not a lot of areas where you can actually film something the way a reservation or a small community like a reservation works. You know, you could set up an interview for Monday at two o'clock and then Wednesday at five o'clock, it actually happens. So I think a lot of people get discouraged. But for me, I was just so curious and loved the whole journey of meeting people, becoming, you know, kind of essentially part of the community in a way, right? Becoming family to certain people. And so it's really a, a whole journey. Rather than anyone being able to learn any kind of filmmaking techniques from me, that I wouldn't be able to have any confidence in. But as far as it being a personal journey and, and experience, that's what it was necessary in order to to make the film. Well, I mean, it's a huge credit to you that, A, you kept at it and fixed the problems because you could have fooled me, man. <laughs> like none of that stuff shows up in the documentary. It's a very, very well-crafted and well put together and, and really a beautiful film. It's also a credit to, oh, thanks, I man. think, you know, your character that, you know, for the community to entrust you with this story that's so important. It was well worth it. This is a beautiful film and I hope Everybody checks it out, and we are very excited to hear that there will be a feature. The one question I have before we take our break is, do you know of a place where people can donate to the BEAR program or, or other programs in the Lakota community? Oh, yeah, for sure. People can go to bearproject.net. That's B-E-A-R-P-R-O-J-E-C-T.net. And I believe you can donate straight right there to uh, the Bear Project, which is a nonprofit that's helping not only suicide survivors, it's helping prevention, it's helping this program stay afloat without you know, relying on grants that may fall through or any other kind of funding that may be promised and then taken away. So that'll go right to Tiny. And I don't know if you noticed this in the film, but they have mascot uniforms that are disheveled and broken and some of them have missing paws or ears and stuff like that and it's really just for me it's awesome to see like you know they they put these things back together with super glue and stitch it by hand i think when they started out they had like a barney outfit uh, that somehow someone donated to them and then someone told me that i don't know if you watch sports so you know the uh, green bay wisconsin cheese hat yeah, you know that, cheeseheads. Uh, yeah, I'm a, <laughs> yeah. I'm a huge Packers fan, so I have I have two cheeseheads okay. in my closet right now. There you go. So <laughs> one of the one of the costumes early on was just someone wearing a cheesehead, I think. And so that you know, there that just goes to show you like what they have to do in order to try and uh, influence the youth to be excited and to entertain them. But that being said, so your donation would 
go to the Bear Project and it would help them fund things like new outfits and pay for gas mileage. They need to go out and do outreach work and stuff like that. Incredible, man. The Bears on Pine Ridge, it's a short documentary, must be seen, a pertinent issue. And you can see it August 9th through August 14th as a part of the Los Angeles Diversity Film Festival. It'll be streaming at LADFF.com and tickets are available for that right now at LADFF.com. We're going to take a quick break, everybody. When we return, Noel is going to help us out with our favorite segment, Gimme Three. The Los Angeles Diversity Film Festival is back. And for the first time ever, the festival will include both in-person and online screenings. Three in-person screenings will be held over three Thursdays starting July 29th with the musical rom-com Best Summer Ever held at the Lemley Town Center in Encino. August 5th, we're back in Encino for the theatrical premiere of the gripping documentary In the Dark of the Valley. And on August 12th, you'll be able to see the award-winning short films selected by our esteemed jury at the Lemley NoHo 7 in North Hollywood. Our online festival will be available at ladff.com from August 1st through 14th, with new films premiering every five days. Tickets for both in-person and online screenings are available right now at ladff.com. Use the promo code FORWARD for 10% off. We are so excited to see you all back at the movies. Join us for the 8th Annual Los Angeles Diversity Film Festival. All right, welcome back to Film Forward, everybody. We are joined by Noel Boss. He is the director of The Bears on Pine Ridge, and he's going to help us out with our favorite segment, Gimme Three. He's going to give us three film recommendations, movies that have inspired him, inspired his work. So, Noel, let's get your first one, sir. Sure. So the first one I, I like is uh, Cartel Land. I think it's two words, Cartel Land. And I believe it's on Netflix. If it's not on Netflix, it's usually somewhere like Amazon Prime. It's by a director named Matthew Heineman. Mm-hmm. He's a documentary filmmaker who's trying to blend more of a narrative style of storytelling. He takes a narrative and, and the cinema verite documentary style, and he kind of blends them together and almost feels like you're watching you know, something that was written in a screenplay. It blows me away. So if you see Cartel Land, you're going to see a documentary that has just a well-put-together storyline. It follows these characters on their journey, and it has a resolve. It's just really, really well-crafted, from the music to the color to the beat, you know, to like the tempo. Have you seen it, by the way? I had. I was a, a really big fan of it. And like you, I was just really impressed with the blending of styles. It's not easy to do and to be able to do it in a way that feels so so purposeful and so like it makes it look so effortless and it, yeah. it never feels jarring. It's really like something to marvel at and something that I would like at one point like to try. But I'm like, my God, it's a masterstroke that I uh, that I do not have yet. <laughs> oh my God, none of us. I, I don't know how he did it, uh, but I think a lot of it's from the editors. They have a great team of editors. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, most of his stuff, he has another film called City of Ghosts, which is in that same style too. And But I, if people watch Cartel Land, you're going to see like some exciting scenes like in the middle of gunfire and, you know, characters that are in danger. And my heart was beating a lot through the film. And, and then it, you know, covers a, you know, important topic, you know, when you're talking about cartels and, and uh, corrupt governments and stuff like that. Definitely worth the watch. 
absolutely worth the watch. Thrilling, thrilling. As you said, it's, it's a pulse-pounding film. Cartel Land, you can check it out. I'm looking at it right now. It's available on Hulu if you have a, a premium subscription. Ah. Excellent first choice. Let's get your second choice, Noel. Okay. The next one is The Act of Killing. And I think I'd like partner it with The Act of Killing's like kind of sequel, which is called The Look of Silence. But The Act of Killing, if people haven't seen it, goes into Indonesia mm-hmm. and looks at something that happened about, I think like in the 70s. Yeah, it's like uh, 65, I think. 65, 65. Is okay. It started, yeah. And basically there was a communist, anti-communist movement that was happening and it was completely out of control. And it was it's even argued if it was fueled by the American government, fueling some of these residents and sort of having political sway on the country of Indonesia to get rid of communists. And what happened is you have essentially a million citizens who experienced like a red scare where they were just wiping out citizens who they believed were communists without putting them on trial, just killing them, like very gruesome killings, exterminating them, just a terrible genocide. And it's kind of not well known, but what Joshua Oppenheimer has done with his documentary, he's gone in and you know become part of the community. He learned a language, he's befriended people, and he said he garnered a lot of trust. And what he realized is that some of these quote-unquote killers or murderers who were part of that movement are boasting about their efforts, boasting about just killing people on, you know, gruesomely and throwing them in the river. And so he somewhat strategically gets them to agree to reenact like some of the scenes. And, you know, you're looking at people that don't have a, a Hollywood industry, you know, like they don't have a film community, they don't know much about film. So they're you're witnessing on many multiple levels of a very interesting documentary. You're talking about a serious subject. You're watching the firsthand murderers boast about it and reenact it into what they think is a good film while also showing just the lifestyle of Indonesia and some of those communities that are kind of impoverished a little bit. It is like one of the all-time greats. If you haven't seen it, you have to watch it and just realize that it's something unbelievably special what this filmmaker has done and i think he went in with like just a camera and then not to go too long he made kind of like a follow-up film based on the same topic but this one is much more shot a little bit in better quality and also you have you see multiple cameras and so it's a little bit more stylized and what it does is it takes the community someone who is a child of a family that were communists i believe and whose brother was killed because he was supposedly a communist and he's wants to confront these killers and he so mm. he goes and he basically conducts these kind of secret interviews in a way so he'll show up and he's sort of a optometrist and so he'll go to these people who are now older and say hey let me do a free exam on your eyes and while he's doing that he'll get them to talk about what they had done it's not just what the first film was them exposing what they've done he's actually confronting them and saying don't you feel guilt? Don't you have something in your soul that knows it's wrong? And so it's really the resolve to the first piece. Both films are incredible. You have to watch them both. And they're both stylistically a bit different. I have seen The Act of Killing and it was, I mean, it might be one of the best, not just best documentaries I've ever seen, it's one of the best films I've ever seen. As you mentioned, it's got so many layers and it's so 
I mean, you're kind of just in shock after watching it. One thing that I took away from it that was like so interesting, you mentioned that, you know, there's some theories that the U.S. government was partially aided the military regime to do this stuff. But also there's like moments where you could tell that there's like an American influence from the violence from our films. They're talking about going to the cinema and watching an American film about like American gangsters and then taking ideas from those films and using it to torture these supposed communists. And then conversely, they're making movies about it, like taking techniques from American cinema to to make movies about their own violent past. And it was like really staggering. It made me consider, I'm like, good God, is this a thing that I have dedicated my life to? And like, what effect (laughs) does it really have on the world? It keeps you awake at night, I think, for a few days. You got to check it out. The Act of Killing. Absolutely. I haven't seen the second one, The Look of Silence. The Look of Silence. It's, yeah, really good. I got to check that out. I'll check that out this week. It's much more poetic and feel. Excellent choice. Your third and final film, sir. Third and final one I almost didn't want to put down because I feel like this is something everyone's seen, heard about, or talked about. It's Werner Herzog's Grizzly Man. But... The reason I did was because it's just truthfully one of my favorites. And I have found that there's a lot of friends that I have or people that I'll meet that haven't seen it. And so I'm always um, excitedly happy to uh, be the first person to tell them you need to watch this film. People look at this film very simply as the film that covers the guy who was attacked and eaten by a bear, right? And so like, why would you be excited about like, hey, you got to watch this film. It's about a guy being eaten by a bear. It's not about that. It's really just a character piece that is so beautifully done that goes in to showing a very, very, very unique individual on this planet who, in his mind, gave up his life to be a protector of endangered grizzly bears up in Alaska, I believe. And Werner Herzog, who everybody knows is a, probably the most famous documentarian of all time, He was introduced in the project by a friend who had all this footage after this man, Timothy Treadwell was the name of the character, had passed on after he'd been attacked by a bear. Timothy Treadwell is a guy that filmed himself a lot of his journeys and would talk to the camera and he'd have a show of his own. And so they took all of his footage and crafted this beautiful documentary that allows you, the viewer, to decide, was he right in going into territories that are protected for grizzly bears? and living with them and trying to protect them. So Werner Herzog does a nice job in not telling the audience, you should like this character or you should hate this character. He shows you both sides really unbiased in his storytelling and how he does it. And he even says in the film what his opinion is, the director does. And so for him to make a piece, a beautiful piece like this, that allows an unbiased look and for you to, to judge what is right and wrong, um, shows just an amazing maturity in a storyteller, you know. I mean, he's he's great, but that's one of my favorite films that he's he's ever done, and probably one of my favorite documentaries of all time. It's got so much emotional range. Absolutely, yeah. Like you said, it it seems like a base level story when you hear the concept, as you said. But yeah, it's got so many layers, and it's about so much more. Yeah, yeah. I mean, what what can you say, Herzog? He's a he's a master. So these he are is, yeah. Three really incredible picks, Noel. I really, really thank you for these. And I thank you very much for making The Bears on Pine Ridge a really incredible film. 
And thank you for joining us on the show today. Oh, thank you very, very much. I'm happy to be here. I'm happy to be part of the festival. I hope everyone checks out the festival and hopefully you get a chance to see Bears on Pine Ridge and get to learn about the topic. So thank you so much. Absolutely. Thank you all for listening to Film Forward and we'll catch you next time. Our recording engineer and mixer is Anselm Kennedy. The podcast is produced by Anselm, Sonia Maru, and yours truly. Thanks for joining us on Film Forward, and you'll hear us next time.